Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Tom Anderson. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 293. Tom Anderson is an old-timer engineer working from HP Agilent Keysight, currently still employed at Keysight and volunteering at Alembic, where he designs electronics for bass guitars. His career includes design of firmware, digital, analog, microwave, optical, power supplies, software, and information systems. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming on to our podcast. That's great. Um... And I have to say, I am not speaking for Keysight or Alembic today. I'm just representing myself. Well, sounds good. So uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking about um, taking measurements. I think we were talking about one of the devices I've designed um, and and talking about ADCs on there. And we reached out to the uh, to the community to see if we could get a metrologist to come on. And uh, Tom volunteered to come talk about uh, taking measurements and accuracy and resolution and just how do you read things uh, in your day-to-day work. Yeah, most of the time you don't really need to worry about all of this stuff. I mean, as a, as a hobbyist, is accuracy really important? You know, well, it's up to you because it's your hobby. Um, but sometimes you really want things to be more accurate than they are. And so what I'm going to be talking about is how do you make things more accurate when you need them to be? And it's not to say that you need to do all of these things, um, but it is good to understand them all. And I've had to, over the years, because of working on test equipment, um, you do need to worry about accuracy a lot because that's kind of what you're selling. I mean, Yeah, a lot of people are banking on what you're designing to tell them if what they are designing is accurate or not right and we're banking that they'll they'll pay a premium for accuracy right <laughs> because um <laughs> but but there really is money involved because if you have more accurate equipment uh you can actually reduce your measurement uncertainty and by doing that you actually increase yield because there needs to be some guard band between um between what you measure and what your specification is that's based on whatever your measurement uncertainty is. And so that's actually worth something. Um, and it's definitely for sale. Um, and then, of course, once you do measure it and you, you decide how accurate you need it to be, then you'd like to have a way to verify um, that you know your system is, is better um, or that your system is at least as good as what you said it was. And so that's the whole process of verification, which is a whole nother, um, a whole nother topic, uh, that goes with accuracy. The way I always think about it is the old saying you, um, what is it? You measure with a micrometer, you mark with chalk and you cut with ax, right? <laughs> so, so you, you always, it, things always get less accurate as you go. But then if you have some good measurement equipment after you cut with the axe, then you measure it with the micrometer. You measure what you cut and then you carve to trim it in. So maybe that's an adjustment or maybe that's uh, like a pot or maybe it's uh, software. That's kind of the trend is to do everything in software. And so you would, you know, you carve it in and then you can start to see, okay, how close to my chalk line did I get? Um, 
and so and and there you know you say well is like my design uses these tolerance parts so i could be anywhere within this chalk line and so when i get inside there um i have some clue that i i did it right and a surprising amount of the time you actually don't get inside that chalk mark you there's some weird error or some design flaw or whatever where, you know, I used 1% resistors, but it didn't, my voltage divider didn't come out to 1% or 2% even. It came, it came out to 3% or some other funny number. And so that's where you have to start chasing things down and, and doing even more measurements and then getting more skills as an engineer to learn about more effects. You know, maybe it's the input current of the next stage or whatever it is. You know, um, that, that's really interesting. I, I haven't heard that uh, saying before, but I really like it. Um, and and I, think, I think in a lot of ways at school, we're taught just the micrometer part. We're not taught that a piece of chalk is a quarter of an inch wide and then an axe is just going to brutalize your, your uh, cut, right? Like Those are the things that we don't know about. And, and what you just said there, the skill that you gain as an engineer isn't knowing the micrometer because that's just a design parameter that either is given to you or you create. And the rest is uh, experience in a way. Uh, yeah, and having equipment that's good enough, you know, like having owning a micrometer uh, is is part of it. And if all you have is a ruler, then you don't get to, you know, make things quite as accurate, uh, which might be fine. You know, it's up to you as to how accurate something needs to be. Um, one, one time I got a chance to uh, set a specification for a circuit I was working on. I thought, ah, I'm hot stuff. I can, I can hit a tenth of a dB with this thing plus or minus a tenth of a db that's going to be my specification because the old ones all they, all our similar <laughs> products had like plus or minus one db and i thought i'm gonna really hit this one uh so i built it and they put it into the uh production test chambers and so forth the environmental test and all that and i came in one morning and uh the production guy said um Hey, um, your circuits, um, it, it's, uh, it's failing the, the, the gain test. Uh, I said, well, how, how is that? And he said, well, the specification is 0.1 dB and the measurement error is 0.06 dB. So your part is 0.04 dB and we're measuring 0.05. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> I thought, oh man, this is brutal. Ooh, I wasn't thinking about measurement yeah. uncertainty when I made that brag, right? And so, um, actually, did fix it. Uh, it was a pretty—it was a really subtle problem, like you're saying. It was—I had to learn about a whole different effect, and it was a, a shielding problem where one stage was feeding back uh, to the previous stage a little bit and just changing the gain at a different setting, so the gain. The gain of the previous stage depended on the gain of the next stage. When the gain of the next stage went up, it fed a little bit of that signal back to the previous stage uh, and made them so that they wouldn't add together anymore uh, accurately. And mm -hmm. so um, so that was that was the problem. And so it, this fix was to add more shielding, um, which we did. Uh, and I, I don't know actually what spec it finally shipped with. <laughs> I'd moved on by that point, but um, but yeah, that was a really tough spec. That was in a spectrum analyzer uh, in an IF. 
which is something I spent a lot, a long time working on. Yeah, it's uh, it's easy to um, set the spec without thinking of um, some of the downstream consequences of doing it. Well, that, that's that's the easy part, right? I can write a spec for my next product in like thirty seconds, right? <laughs> also, I, 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 I like that uh, I like that mentality you had there because I mean I'm I'm sure a lot of us have been there before. It's like I'm gonna be the one engineer. I'm gonna be the guy that that gets this. It's like no, you're not. <laughs> Half the time, no, you're not. <laughs> Yeah, what are the the phases of a of an idea? It's something like, wow, this is really simple. I don't know why everyone doesn't do it this way. Uh, you know, this must this is, and then you try it and you say, wow, this is really pretty innovative. But oh, there's these problems, and then it's like, oh, this is why nobody does it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Actually, I, I, I'm going back at Blueville. What I was saying, usually, actually, it's not the engineer setting the specs either. It's usually like a sales or a oh, marketing, marketing team. Group yeah, yeah and in, in this particular product, the the project manager. When it, it's kind of traditional, when you go to start working on a project, the project manager tells you what the requirements would be, and you know, you kind of sign up for it to see if you're up for such a thing. And so, um, so it, this was a very unusual project that was cost-driven, uh, unusual for, it was HP at the time. And, it, and he said, well, this is what your assembly needs to cost. And he showed me a spreadsheet and, and, and how that contributed to the overall product and all of that. And I said, well, what does it need to do? And he said, well, it needs to cost this amount. <laughs> And I said, no, but like the electrical specifications. He said, oh, yeah, whatever we had before. Just just make it like that, but um, but make it cheaper. And so my first step was to actually measure the old product to see what it really did. Uh, and by the mm. time I was done that, they, they did a whole bunch of production change orders to fix what was wrong with the old product that I uncovered in like actually analyzing exactly how well it worked. Um, which um, which they had done some of, but not, not quite enough for my taste, or certainly not enough to you know base a new design on it uh, as a specification. So, yeah, you you had to maximize everything else but minimize the cost. Yes, it's actually a really interesting problem um, if you analyze it that way. The most important thing is to be able to model your cost. So to be able to, as you're designing, to see the um, impact of your decisions on the final cost. And that's actually a hard problem. Some people, I think, have tried to make CAD plugins and stuff to work like with contract manufacturers to um, predict what something's going to cost kind of as you go. So you have a little cost in the corner of your, um, of your CAD tool, uh, like a plugin and a CAD mm -hmm. tool. And that's a great idea. Um, uh, I didn't have that, but what I found, uh, and and that doesn't really guide you for electrical decisions, like what component do I use? But what I found worked really well was actually to minimize power. Um, and that really indirectly minimizes cost in a very strange way, which is that hmm. if you if you minimize power, you can make things smaller and they won't overheat. And as you make things smaller, you use less material, you get more boards per panel. Uh, and a lot of the, 
cost driver is actually your boards per panel. And so if you can reduce that uh, and, and get everything onto smaller boards, the cost goes way down in these big steps as you know, as you get one more or two more, three more onto the panel, you can see this sort of staircase of the cost going down. And it's one of the few things that, you know, you can really do something about. Um, and so really size, uh, you know, in this case, putting components on both sides of the board actually made it cheaper because it was, you know, fewer panels because there was this big panel at the time, the manufacturing process we were using had a large panel per panel cost driver. And so, but it was important that I knew what those cost drivers were. And so, and so that's a, one of the challenges with a lot of manufacturing is, is that like a contract manufacturer may not want to share all their cost drivers because that's some proprietary thing, right? That's kind of their secret sauce is to exactly what everything is that, costs. Is that, is that secret spreadsheet? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, and then you have people like <laughs> submit like a hundred fake designs so that they can reverse engineer your spreadsheet so they can figure out what your costs are, either because they're another contract manufacturer and they want to compete or because they're trying to design something. Um, so ultimately, I think the word gets out. I think more of the challenge is that cost drivers keep changing as you get different machines or your processes change or you know you move factories or something like that. It's kind of hard to design that way unless you mm -hmm. really know what exact factory you're aiming at. Funny, funny little um, side tangent here. Oh, that's right along with that. Um, years ago, I think it was before I started at Macrofab, I found a website that uh, allows you to type in some generic board information, XY size, color, things like that. And somebody had gone out and reverse engineered the algorithms of like 30 different PCB manufacturers. Wow. And, and they, would, they would give you an aggregate of, of everybody. And it was awesome. It was great. And if you were, you know, hobbyist level trying to get, you know, cheapest possible price with, with information. But I'm trying like, to save that one pint of beer. That one, yeah, that one point of beer. But it's just like, oh, man. There's the, and, and the way they even said it on this website, the way they did it was just putting in loads of information into their calculators and extrapolating data and then curve fitting to do this. I'm, you know, I don't know how often uh, people change that information. Was like, man, your website is valid for a week, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's rough. That's well, that's kind of like the a lot of these big data problems where mm -hmm. you know you need you yeah. There's this really nice computer programming language for um, doing statistics called R, mm -hmm. uh, and it has all this really advanced curve fitting stuff in it. If you ever want to take a super deep dive into curve fitting, I really recommend getting into R. Because you can take in, you know, these great clouds of points and turn it into like, well, from this big cloud of points, predict me this cost. And it can make you a model based on a lot of things. Um, I did that actually with spectrum analyzers when I was making spectrum analyzers. And I found out that there were all these different terms, like w how you could predict based on the uh, data sheet for a spectrum analyzer, what it would cost. One was just how many watts did it take? Uh, so that's getting back into the power thing. Another was the maximum frequency. And I found that there was a term, I think it was something like 14 cents per root hertz. So you take the square root <laughs> of the frequency and multiply by 14 cents, and that's like an adder. Um, 
onto the cost. And then there was a few other terms, you know, like the length and width and height of it, or the volume actually, or density is what it actually was. Because, because ultimately, if it was, if it's made of like a solid chunk of aluminum, it's more expensive because what that means is there's a bunch of microcircuits in it. Um, and so, because that's that how they used to make them with gold bricks. Product. What's that? The, the gold that's brick like, microcircuits put, used to be the way to go. Put lead in your product. Yeah, yeah. If you put lead in. Yeah, it's it, like. Yeah, I had, I, I've seen that in telephones, the old um, desk telephones that, that were, would be super lightweight and they would fall off the desk uh, and they had weights in them. Um, but anyway, yeah, you can you can uh, predict the cost of things in ways that you wouldn't expect. Um, with printed circuit boards, of course, though, I mean, all the man there's so many manufacturing steps uh, that, of course, it makes sense that there would be cost drivers, but they're pretty complicated because there's a lot of steps for bare boards and then even more for loaded. So um, there's a lot of steps, and there's oh, what are we at like? 60 years of just different technologies and different kinds of machines and that kind of stuff that are making them now. Yeah. And so many different substrates and, and, uh, materials. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a complicated thing for sure. Man, project managers must have loved you giving them little calculators to just say, here's our next product and here's how much I expect it to cost. They had, they had, no, they had absolutely no use for this. The only use I ever put to this was, <laughs> um, I, I actually came up with this when a new spectrum analyzer came out and we were guessing what it would cost. Mm. Um, and so I did this curve fit and I said, okay, well, we got to have a pool. And whoever wins the pool, the other guy's got to chip in and get a free lunch at the local microbrewery. And so, um, so I put together this model and I came up with this cost and I won for sure. I was within like 3%. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of spooky actually. Yeah. Yeah, I actually learned the technique from my dad. They had something like that uh, for aerospace, actually. How much would our radar cost, I think, was the, the thing. And they could do real high-level analysis. It, when you get into systems engineering, because system engineering is really about, you know, if you put a lot of things together, are they going to work at the end? And so if you take a system like a in a aerospace system that's a huge system right you it's ungodly expensive to to put it all together and then say well yeah we're gonna light a match under this thing and it's gonna go to the moon or whatever right so so the system engineering that goes into that is incredible um whereas in a, as the products get smaller and smaller the role of the system engineer you know is smaller and smaller and when you're at a single board product it's you're pretty much just a board engineer uh maybe you know the person who tells the board engineer to talk to the ME is the system engineer. So, um, but in that, you know, in the region where you have a box of with a dozen boards in it or something like that, um, yeah, you need a little bit of system engineering to say, you know, how are you going to put things together? Um, and that, of course, gets it, like we were talking about before, it gets into the specifications and the accuracy. Um, so with that great segue there, um, <laughs> what you what you worry about is because i have done a little bit of system engineering and and i'm not i wouldn't count myself as a metrologist i i never had a business card that said that 
Um, but um, but I, I do work with metrologists, um, and I know about what they do. Um, and I know what they worry about. And one of the big things they worry about is temperature. Because just about everything is a thermometer, right? And so what do you do about that? Um, and, and how does that affect what you put together? On the, first, on the first page of the manual, it says set air conditioners 72 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, a, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, now, so when you have an air conditioner, it's got some high temperature on it and a low temperature, right? Because it's got some window where it's, it's ramping down the temperature and then it, it, as it's on and then it turns off and the temperature creeps back up. So you get this kind of sawtooth pattern. And then as people open and close doors and stuff, you get these little steps and you get little gusts of wind. And then if you like wave your hand in front of a circuit, it'll make a little breeze that'll cool things down or warm them depending on how the air is flowing. And you can see all of this in a, in a sensitive enough circuit, you know, I, you can just breathe on them and see it. Uh, if you, if you turn the, the measurement way up now, part of it is getting that measurement to be sensitive enough. And so, um, what you got to do to do that is to figure out how to really kind of zoom in with your test equipment. Cause I see when a lot of people use test equipment, say they're measuring something like rise time. I'll just see a step on the, on the scope. And they say, well, I hit the rise time button and it tells me that it's, you know, two nanoseconds. And so I say, well, I, I see a step there. It's like the points are right next to each other on the screen. How do, what's the resolution? Is it like one nanosecond resolution? And so, what you need to do is to zoom in on that rise so that it, and then so that it's spread out in time. Maybe that rise time, you want it to go all the way across the scope, like from the first division to the 10th division. You want to see that, that rise um, going up slowly and you want it to fill the whole screen of the scope. And so it's at kind of banked to a 45 degree angle. Um, and then you put the markers on it and you really measure like 10% to 90% or 20 to 80, depending on what your specification is. So you really get that, that measurement right. And now if you see that, and when you zoom in, but you see that it's like bouncing all around, <laughs> you say, wait, wait a minute now, is this rise time with respect to this clock? I mean, what do I really care about? Is it the threshold that it, the logic high threshold after the clock pulse or how am I synced up in this measurement, right? It's, there's, so if you, no, if it's rock solid, that's great. Uh, you don't have to worry about all that, but you do get into this, this whole jitter problem and jitter makes it very difficult to, you know, understand the, uh, there's very little mathematical analysis of that. None of the, they teach you in school <laughs> where you worry about time shifting a little bit because they always say, well, sine wave, it's sine, you know, two pi F T. Right? They don't say, well, what if T has like a little noise on it? They don't talk about that very much. They'll talk about it the other direction. They'll say, well, what if the amplitude has a little noise on it? And they'll spend a whole semester on that. But time noise, it's like, no, that doesn't exist. That, that's too hard. Um, we don't know what that is. Uh, but it's, it's scary, but it can be analyzed. Um, it, it's expensive to work on. Um, but anyway, when you... Um, 
so when you're measure, making this measurement, say you get a really good high-resolution measurement and you have temperature, but it's cycling up and down, what, that's not great because you don't really know where you are in all of that cycling of a couple of degrees. It's very, very difficult to make a room that's plus or minus one degree C, uh, worst case. To do that, what they do is they actually make a special temperature-controlled room with many temperature sensors and then they have um, coolant in the walls uh, that circulates through it. And then the air is pre-chilled and then heated um, with a proportional heater, not a, not a on-off like an air conditioner, but you know, just a, a proportional control heater. And then you, you've ducked that in. And that's, what's, that's how you make a metrology room. Uh, and I, you know you have to worry about humidity and all of that stuff too a little bit, um, and you know kind of they kind of tend to be kept kind of clean. They're not quite clean rooms, but they're pretty clean. Like you won't see people eating in there, uh, no burritos, you know. Um, uh, so on your on your test equipment, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, the, that's sort. Of, so that's electrical and mechanical metrology. Now, mechanical metrology, they get into like the coordinate measurement machines and that sort of thing. And the, the way that I got into it was because um, in microwave standards, the, it, the standards are based on mechanical measurement. It's like a length of a transmission line or something is the, is the standard. And so you translate this mechanical measurement into an electrical measurement through a model. And you see a lot of that in accuracy things where you, you, it requires a model of the system in order to say how accurate something is. Another way to say it is um, if you want to say how big something is, you have to say what shape it is. So if you want to ask okay, me the, yeah, that makes sense. the dimension of this is, well, is it a rectangle or a trapezoid or what, it, what is it that you were trying to make here? So that's the model. And so the accuracy mm -hmm. works on the model. Um, yeah. So with temperature, say, um, there's a lot of, it, you can make really great measurements with frequency, right? Because we have incredible resolution on frequency with crystal oscillators and stuff, you know, and all the work that people have done with really fancy, like even a cheap function generator you buy these days has beautiful synthesized frequency it's really accurate and if you have 10 megahertz references in the back of a lot of these piece of equipment you hook them together and they're all in tune uh and so you you make yourself an oscillator either crystal or an lc oscillator and you measure it with a frequency counter or spectrum analyzer whatever you have um you can you can really see it drift uh with incredible resolution and that's where you can make yourself you know millihertz resolution thermometer you have no it's not calibrated you have no idea what it does um, well i suppose you could calibrate it if you had a good thermometer um, but that's where you can see these little wafts of air go by and that sort of thing and you can tell somebody's got that problem when you go by their bench and they have a a paper coffee cup on top of their circuit that's when they realize that the drafts in the room are pulling the frequency around to their measurement. And it's really, it's amazing how well it works just for 
First approximation, mm -hmm. frequency stability, coffee cup. Works every time. <laughs> I, I remember doing something uh, similar at, at Macrofab. I had to have some, um, uh, I was matching some transistors and uh, for, for a, a frequency-based circuit. And uh, I was just for fun doing hand-matched transistors. And I got a big block of styrofoam put all the test transistors in that and put a fan on it to make sure that it had constant cool air flowing over them to try to make as much of a uh, specific temperature as possible or just to make sure that random fluctuations were not included in that. Uh, it still was incredibly difficult to do. Yeah, and you get into microphonics as well uh, when you start adding fans mm -hmm. in. Another feature of, well, DC fans anyway, um, is the rotating magnets. Uh, they tend to cause all kinds of interference. Plus they have a, a very strong pulsing of their current. Like you put them on 12 volts or whatever, your 12 volt supply gets these big pulses of current through it. And you know that's why you'll see systems sometimes have their a separate power supply just for the fan um, is because they don't want mm -hmm. those pulses of current coming in and polluting their supply. Because that's another, another big source of error is, do you really know, Mr. System Engineer, where all the ground current is flowing in your system? Because it's a really mm. hard problem to know. Like if you have, like say, a box of cards of electronics with a metal frame and there's kind of some grounds sprinkled around, do you really know how the ground current is flowing? And most of the time, unless you think really hard about it, you don't. Um, another thing that's really good to have is a micro-ohm meter or a milli-ohm meter, uh, a meter that can show like one milli-ohm full scale because you really need to know how much resistance is there from this frame, part of the frame to that part of the frame or across this ground plane or, or whatever because here's what happens. Let's say you've got, uh, uh, I'll make it an audio connector. Yeah, let's say there's an audio connector on the front panel and it's, it's on the casting, you know, and it's got, and it's hooked to a little circuit board that's a little amplifier. And the little amplifier has a power supply on it. And the power supply has got the nice red wire and the black wire and the black wire is the ground and the red wire is the plus going to the supply. Uh, and what you're expecting is, is that current flows through the red wire and then through your circuit and then back through the black wire. But there's a very good chance that instead of that black wire is just this beefy little wire and it's got this really low resistance frame that you attach the quarter inch audio input ground to. And so that return current is gonna go through the frame and then back to where your supply is mounted on the power entry to, you know, to it's same as your safety ground of, of the whole metal box. And so you, now you have this big loop, right? That's, that's the red wire with the plus 12 through the circuit and then now back through the frame. And so any magnetic field that goes through that loop is now gonna be imposed onto that, uh, in, into that. And so it's gonna lift a voltage somewhere and there's a very good chance you'll be able to hear it. Oh, yeah. um, I've, def I've definitely come across that and uh, 
and it was 60 hertz. <laughs> Got oh, yeah. coupled really hard in that circuit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and... and the, Actually, that, that, that's and interesting. I, I, I figured it out by accidentally disconnecting the ground the ground wire. Mm. And that... uh, And then the 60 hertz went away, and I'm like, huh. <laughs> hmm. Because it, it, it was flowing through the chassis, right. and I took off the loop right. by accident. And sometimes you need to make the loop better. It's like, well, the loop is good, but maybe that chassis isn't really designed to conduct reliably all the time maybe it has some paint on it or some other finish that's not you know chromate whatever um and so a really good tool is an exacto knife so you go around mm. shorting things together with an exacto knife it makes a really low contact resistance because you want to dig into the metal and get to that good fresh metal that's not oxidized you want to dig through that oxide layer and cut in uh and when you do that um you get to you know you get to make these low contact resistance and you know, you can just listen or watch the signal on an analyzer or whatever and you can see it go down another one is like torquing screws it's like i i've been able to see like a signal on a screen just drop as i added more torque to the screw until it just gets to the screw yield point it's like oh i should I should probably stop now because i'm about to <laughs> pop this screw um yeah nothing tighter than stripped <laughs> <laughs> I, I i'm i'm envisioning a uh, an exacto blade with a banana uh connector <laughs> on the end of it <laughs> just, just going around stabbing things <laughs> it's the it's the blade to blade connection that's really low resistance so you want to you want to cut on both ends now if you had two exactos mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with a cable between them that would be pretty good too but it would need to be like a jumper cable of a car <laughs> or something like that and you need to get the blade attached to that cable really well so you can imagine like a big copper tube but you know you, you really want copper wire because even like plumbing copper isn't really very good do you ever measure like the resistance of like copper pipe, it's not that good. It's not nearly as good as the like electrical copper. Anyway, um, I, th so I think most of that is from the because uh, I have messed with that, that before, and it's I think it's actually the the patina, the the oxide that forms on top of of mm -hmm. copper pipes is what makes that super high resistance. I think there's some oxygen involved as well. Um, oxygen. Is there more copper. oxygen in the copper and pipes? I think so, but I I don't have any numbers on it. Uh, hmm. I've never had to actually use plumbing supplies in an in a product um, for electrical, <laughs> but I could just imagine like those. You know, you see these big data center bus bars and stuff. You know where they have these huge currents because the trend is now, of course, towards all these super high current, low voltage things. You know, like an FPGA with eight tenths of a volt supply at 80 amps or something. Um, you know, there's these super high current, low voltage. Um, it's, it, it's basically we're making arc welders, um, as power On the nanometer scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really bizarre. Um, so, so, but anyway, no, the, I, the, so on that, mm-hmm. Sorry, Tom. So on that real quick, is that from the reduce on on rise? Is that I think that's the reason why going lower voltage is like the future. Future. Why? Why is lower voltage better? You mean? Um, 
Well, there's a there's a couple of really good trends for lower voltage. One is that if you have the same volts per nanosecond, you get there quicker. Mm -hmm. uh, just because you don't have as many volts to go. So if you look at the rise time of modern stuff, it's not that different than it was a long time ago. Uh, it's just that we had to go five volts. Um, and, you know, so okay. it's five times that, that's, faster. That's what I figured. I just... The other is the one half CV. Yeah, there's the one half CV squared term, and that has the V squared term in it, and so that's that's a really big deal too. As the device count goes way up, um, the energy in each device that one half CV squared start. You're pretty soon you're talking about real energy with a billion transistors, you know. Um, so that's that's a big part of it too. Um, Sorry to interrupt. Then no, that's, that's, quite, that's all right. <laughs> I, was, I was curious. And I, I I thought that's why I remembered. So yeah, with the smaller breakdown voltage, you can get, you know, I think they can do lower capacitance. Just smaller devices. Yeah, smaller devices. You end up with a smaller breakdown voltage, so you have to run them lower voltage. Also, that's the other thing is you don't really have a choice um, for the small devices. It's the volts per meter or whatever. Yeah, if you look at the volts per meter and things, it's it's kind of scary, actually. Like, if you just look at two traces on a circuit board and you say, like, well, I've got my plus and minus 15 volt supplies here and they're right next to each other on these traces and they're they're separated by five mils. That's uh, five mils is one two hundredth of an inch. And... You're saying you have 30 volts across there. That's 30 times 200. That's 6,000 volts per inch. Um, and that's getting dangerously close. Well, that's getting within the region where you should start thinking about what you're doing because even if you don't get arcing, you're going to promote corrosion there, right? Any any salt or any moisture on the board and you're going to start growing dendrites and all that. Um, so, yeah, another good thing about to look at for um board design in general is you you, you definitely want to think about your volts per meter as far as i know there aren't great cad tools for that do you guys know of any tools for kind of checking a layout for volts per meter no hmm. no besides just manually calculating out when you're doing your layout right um i imagine you're I, I imagine Cadence probably has a package for that because they have a package for everything. Oh, okay. There a you plug go. plug-in. Yeah, it's, it's an opportunity for someone. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to take a quick step backwards um, on this, kind of a little bit back to taking measurements and actually uh, um, the act of taking measurements. And uh, I, one one thing that's sort of been a theme of what we're, we're talking about here is when you're going to take a measurement, it isn't as simple as just going and grabbing the measurement. You have to first start by asking yourself, what am I actually measuring? And what is my goal with this measurement? Um, it's not necessarily that you're, you know what the measurement should be. It's that you need to know how you're attacking it. So like we said, with, with temperature, are you, are you, maintaining temperature properly um i mean all the bazillion of other factors that goes into it but what i want to uh, talk about here for a second is uh let's just pick something simple that that electrical guys do let's just talk about voltage measurements uh and and say i've got joe schmo voltage meter 
and mm-hmm. and I'm needing to tell, say, a test production engineer, measure a voltage at a particular place. It's really easy to say, put your red wire here, or maybe I even thought about it and gave you a test point on the board. But uh, when it comes down to measuring um, uh, against the ground, what uh, what is the kind of target with that? How do we? Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is where do you put your ground? Um, good example. Uh, you got a circuit that has, say, some analog uh, stuff in in one corner, some digital stuff in another corner, some power supply entry in uh, on some other side of the board. Are you trying to measure your ground closest to the analog stuff? Are you getting the correct uh, reading there? Are you putting your ground over at the digital side of the board and you're reading something else? Which one's right? Uh, how do you go about uh, approaching that? Yeah, well, the the short answer is you only get one ground on your board, and you have to decide where it is. And everything else mm-hmm. is, you can call it ground, but you're hurting yourself when you do that because um, it's not really ground. The ground it's was ground over in that other spot. an offset. <laughs> and it's like, well, you can give yeah. your different grounds little hats for them to wear. You know, you can make them, oh, well, this is my digital ground, <laughs> you know? Um, and here's my analog ground and here's my earth ground and you know I think there's somebody wrote some amusing uh, cartoons with a whole bunch of different grounds on it Um, so what are you going to do with all of that well uh, usually you want a stable reading and so if the ground that you're measuring has is, is you know like there's probably a capacitor between the voltage that you're measuring and the and the ground like maybe you're measuring the supply of an op amp and so in that case you would want to measure right across the plus or minus terminals of the op amp or if you're measuring the output voltage of the op amp you probably want to measure someplace close to the op amp as opposed to off in the corner by your switching power supply or your digital section because you want a nice stable reading, right? You, that's the whole, the whole, you gotta ask yourself, well, why do I care what that voltage is? And so if what you really wanna know is, well, how bad is my ground? Then what you do is you measure from ground to ground. Um, and, and you may be horrified at that. Um, well, you'll at least find out what's going on. The other nice thing about measuring from ground to ground is you can turn the sensitivity of the meter way up so you can expand it, like I was talking before about the scope, about how you should always, you know, expand the scale. Well, if I crank the scope all the way up uh, and I, I measure my ground point, either, either that ground point this far away or close by, I should see zero there. If I don't see zero there, then maybe it's the little loop. I have a little antenna that's the loop of the probes. And maybe I want probes that are more, uh, better shielded. Um, uh, and maybe a smaller loop area, like a, like a little piece of coax with just a little wire sticking out the end. Um, and maybe I want my ground test point to be right next to my voltage that I want to measure and maybe have, you know, the little spring clip that comes with your scope probes, you know, that little plastic bag that comes with the probes and it's got that little spring in it along with the little clips for the different colors. You ever use that spring or do you just set that? You just throw that thing aside. That little spring, you take off the the (laughs) bayonet tip and you jam that spring on there. And what it's for 
is so that you can get a really small loop in the scope probe uh, between that the tip and the ground. And you can get much, hmm. it cleans up a lot of problems with scopes when you, when you use that little clip. But you need to have a ground that's nearby. And so one thing I always look for in a layout is, do I have a ground near the sensitive node that I want to probe? Um, because that's the spot that I want, whether it's with a voltmeter or a scope or, or anything else. Uh, and if I'm fancy, what I might do is actually put a connector there that's normally a do not place. Uh, because that way I can get a shielded connection onto it, maybe, uh, and I can get a really accurate measurement then. Um, if I have room, I'll put that in. And they have these great little um, surface mount, uh, the things that go inside of like Wi-Fi modules and stuff that have the, that little tiny horrible yeah, surface mount connector that everyone hates. Yeah, It's smaller than an SMA. Oh, way smaller, yeah, because it doesn't yeah, have. I know well, what you're it doesn't have about. any They're holes. Like little snap-on ones. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, they're horrible. Ooh. Like a U. They rip something. off the board really easily. <laughs> oh yeah, Ooh, they're terrible. You wouldn't difference. want them in production, but they're perfect. Well, unless you're only going to click it once and that, like, going to your product IoT antenna or something like that. They're good for that, but mm -hmm. they're good as test points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, actually, I'm just that'd be awesome, actually, because they're not that expensive either. That's right. Yeah. Um, and they're yeah. surface mounts, so they'd be easy to place. Ooh, that's such a good idea. Yeah, and you can get a cable that goes parts. to them, and then just get a cable that has that on both ends, or it goes to SMA, and then you just cut that cable and mount it to whatever you want. Put it yeah. into your scope probe or whatever. Um, the problem is they're only that cable is probably only good for like 100 cycles. Um, so it's really more about diagnosing something for verifying the design rather than for a production test. Um, you could use it for a production test. You just have to have a lot of those cables lying around. Uh, they make, actually they make a, there is one company I think that makes a stainless steel version of that. Uh, it's an adapter that you can get that's stainless steel and it actually does last a long time. Um, so it'll, the connectors will wear out, but you don't care about that. You're only going to use it once or twice. MMBX, I think that's it. That's one of them, yeah. There's a bunch of little tiny ones like that, surface mount things. They're awful. Yeah. Yeah, I have a little... So, so I've actually run into issues with um, what we were talking about there to, uh, just a moment ago where I've had um, uh, test uh, test engineers call me up and say, hey, we've got this new batch of, of devices and I'm turning this calibration trim point here and we're just, we're not in spec with everything. Everything's outside of spec. And I go down and, and check out what they're doing and they've got, they're, they're, they're measuring their test points correctly, but they've got their ground plug all the way over at the side of the, uh, uh, plugged into the power supply and it's got cabling to the device. And so their ground is, is forever huge away. And, uh, you know, you bring it over and, uh, you know, way more in spec. Yeah, it helps a lot. Um, and just having solid connections helps a lot. I mean, you know, the, the classic thing is, I think, I think this happens at companies. Like when there's a new guy, um, you take your, all your, you open up your drawer and get your broken scope probes out 
and then you go over to the new guy's area and you swap your probes with his, the, the brand new probes from his and say, yeah, that'll slow him down. <laughs> so I'm not sure we still do hazing of new engineers, but um, it's probably frowned upon. But um, yeah, you really need to have a way to check that your probe is working. Um, and measuring ground is, is definitely one of them. It's also nice to you know hit a supply. And I always say, check the supplies first. Right, because you can chase your tail forever with the, that noise might be coming off your supply. Well, not only the noise, but this is the supply even on. Is it oscillating? <laughs> <laughs> is it whatever? Um, yeah, yeah. My dad was a radio amateur, and he bought a receiver one time, and he's and it just it he could get signals on it, but it was just really bad it wasn't sensitive at all and so he starts tweaking the front end and uh you know working on the shielding and he's getting uh, you know making filters and stuff to try to clean it up and then he discovers that one of it was a tube thing one of the tubes the power supply wasn't even connected it had never even been soldered <laughs> it just the radio had never worked <laughs> so so always check the supply first. <laughs> That'll do it. Because, <laughs> you know, it, it, the signal made it through the tube. It just didn't amplify. It was an attenuator instead. Um, yeah, always, always Wait, check the supply. What's the saying? Supplies. Thou shalt check voltages, right? I think that's good, good advice. That, Steven? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's easy Thou to do. Thou shalt check voltages. Oh, it's, e yeah. it's easy to do. You know, you were talking about, like, what you care about, um, when you when you go into for testing, it's it's similar in God do a lot of automotive stuff. So like, I'm, most time I'm just checking does it have power because most time on cars it's twelve volts or five volts sometimes, but most time twelve. So you have, just have a test light, right? And so you're just poking stuff and having a light bulb light up. Then you go okay that's working. Then you go okay I need my multimeter and figure out am I actually getting my full twelve volts at this point? And then if you go in further because they're Try and diagnose electrical problems, then you get the oscilloscope and plug that out in your car seat and start seeing. Okay, is my signal clean and or my voltage clean enough now? Yeah, um, and the the test light actually has the other benefit that it not only checks the voltage, but it you can see that that voltage can deliver a little bit of current at least. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, one of the things that can fool you about a meter is you know they pride themselves on having really high input impedance, right? Very low current needs to flow and so you can have something like a dead nine volt battery and it measures fine but if you put like a 100k or 10k resistor across it you can see the voltage sags down right away um and that's because it can't it, yeah there's a voltage but it can't deliver any current mm -hmm. uh, so i like the test light a lot and you can kind of look at it and see is that a good 12 volts <laughs> yeah yeah a... you can see how bright the light is <laughs> yeah yeah uh, it's, it's, most... it's actually quite nice because um, most of the time when you're dealing with electrical problems, uh, it's bad grounds. And you won't see that typically with a meter. You'll see that with your test light because you're trying to pull some current through that bad ground. Right, or, right, right. And and then, you know, you turn the thing on or whatever, and then you see the light dim, you know, that yeah. there's... That's there's like some... on the other end of the spectrum. We're talking about accuracy, and that's like using your eyeballs to figure out how bright the light bulb is. <laughs> Well, it gets into how, yeah, and and what are you really trying to do? 
and and that's actually an even harder problem i think um you're trying to make a system work and so what does work mean uh and that that becomes it's always nice when you have specifications that hopefully you got from somewhere maybe you have a marketing department uh, and they helped you with yeah, that, that part. Told you well, there's there's some be. danger in that too because the marketing <laughs> department may have just downloaded the data sheet and said, "Look, the front page says that this IC can do this, so here you go." Yeah, dangerous. typically, uh, it it does something like that. Yeah, the problem with data sheets is they sort of reflect <laughs> the aspirations of the marketing department of the IC company. Um, <laughs> aspirations. aspirations. Yeah, that's a good word for it. <laughs> And and really also the, when talking about accuracy, I think yeah. uh, the car guys um, when they start actually getting into numbers, that's where uh, the accuracy starts raising eyebrows because it's like, hey, I'm trying to read this 12 volt rail. It's t 10 to 14 volts. Good enough. It's there, right? Yeah, you get you get to know your battery pretty well, uh, and 10 volt batteries in cars are not in good shape. Um, no. but they have incredible range. I mean, automotive supplies are famous for, for, there was a great linear tech, uh, data sheet, sort of boilerplate that was in their data sheets about automotive power supplies that started off with, you know, this is the power supply from hell. Um, and it went through, you know, all the different scenarios, including, um, jump starting with double jump starting. Uh, where they jumpstart a car with 24 volts instead of 12. Um, the spikes that go through automotive, you know, 65 volt spikes everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's a very harsh environment. And so uh, it doesn't surprise me that, well, actually I'm amazed that it works as well as it does. Um, they, they must spend a lot of time working on, um, you know, like power supplies and voltage spikes and stuff because it, it, I've never worked on cars designs that way yeah, it must be really hard it's gotten a lot better than in the past um because nowadays uh your your high voltage stuff which is your spark plugs your um ignition coils usually nowadays piggyback right on the spark plug and so the the distance for the high voltage is like the connector nice it's socketing onto the spark plug um where back in the day you're you had one coil and it usually was like mounted like on your firewall and you had like five feet of cabling going into your distributor and then that spread out all over the spark plugs. So you had this huge, you know, 30,000 volt events spread apart all over your engine. And then one of those starts like arcing onto your ground. And yeah, um, it's gotten a lot better nowadays, but yeah, it's, um, it, it's interesting that it works, especially <laughs> when you talk about like it's 12 volts, but it's actually really like, 13 and a half to 14. Right. And you're like, and they use like the battery as like the capacitor in the circuit. <laughs> yeah. Battery that is actually a, helps smooth is a pretty, everything out. Is a pretty good capacitor, you know, but, but people would complain, you know, if you used it as a capacitor, people would complain that it wasn't very linear, you know, because, but yeah. you can model it. If you model it as a capacitor, when you, when you're first discharging it, it acts just like a capacitor. It has so many coulombs in it, and it's like a lot of things. Linear systems are great, right? Because if you look at a small variation of things, almost everything is linear. And so I talk a lot about linear systems, and 
And batteries make a great one. You can calculate how many farads in your battery by just looking at, you know, how many amps can it provide, uh, you know, for how long. And so that was that many coulombs and that much delta V and Q equals CV and it, and it all comes out. Uh, and it's an excellent exercise. It comes out to a really big capacitor, like really big, many farads. Uh, and, and very low resistance. So it's very high performance. Um, the, the ones that are driving me crazy right now are actually multi-layer chip capacitors. Um, they have this horrible problem with the voltage coefficient. Have you guys run into this yet? Uh, where oh, yeah. mm -hmm. you increase the voltage on the, on the capacitor and the capacitance goes down. Uh, and not by a small amount. You can easily be down to you know twenty thirty percent of your original value, um, and so that that's a that's a tough one to figure out. There, fortunately, some of the manufacturers have curves that uh, show you where you are. Uh, I think Kemet and Murata both have curves for most yeah, of their parts. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly actually those curves are not in most data sheets. Like it's really. I've seen them only on Kemet and Murata's. Um, most other manufacturers tend to just ignore that or not have that on their data sheet. Yeah, yeah. And then for aging, uh, that's another problem with these particularly high-density parts. As they age, the capacitance goes down to the extent where I think you would probably see it. Like, do you... When you're loading parts, some of the like pick and place machines have a little like capacitance meter or something in there to tell if you're loading the right value. Mm -hmm. um, and but some of these parts age so quickly that you'd actually have to put in an extra window, extra margin to keep them from uh, being out of spec just because their capacitance is going down, you know, so much per month. Um, so you'd have to know the age of the reel in order to. Uh, to know, hmm. you know, how oh, you mean just sitting on the shelf? Yeah, just sitting on the shelf. The capacitance goes down over time. And same uh, thing with during reflow too. Well, during reflow, the capacitance actually goes back up because it, it reaches like the Curie temperature of the the barium titanator, whatever the heck it is in there, and then it, um, and then it, uh, and then as it ages, the capacitance goes back down uh, quite quickly. In the first day, supposedly, it's pretty unstable. Uh, and then it settles down and it, and it goes, goes down for quite a while. Um, it's proportional to the log of time, supposedly. So, uh, you know, the, between one, between, uh, one day and 10 days is the same as from 10 days to a hundred days, a hundred days to a thousand days and so on. Um, you get a certain percent loss, but apparently, um, I, I just got information recently that, for a capacitor that's held at its bias voltage, it actually ages even faster, um, which we're not seeing mm -hmm. in the data sheets, um, except uh, except for a very small disclaimer somewhere that says, yeah, it goes faster if you put a voltage on it. So yet more capacitance <laughs> loss. None of these seem to increase the capacitance, except for reflow. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> yeah. So in, in a decade, we're going to have to all start reflowing all our ceramic capacitors again, <laughs> get all, all our stuff to start working again. I, yeah, uh, I really Electrolytics, as, as the uh, electrolyte um, dries up, they can increase in capacitance. And well, it, well that, that's the thing is, 
on refurbishing old electronics, um, just re replacing electrolytics has been a thing, like since like radios in the fifties and stuff like that. Um, but ceramic capacitors is something that no, I, I haven't thought of having to replace in the future. Cause it's like, it doesn't have anything to dry out, but it does age as Tom says. Yeah. And it may be that, you know, most of the bypass capacitors we use are way larger than we need and it may be fine. Uh, maybe we should keep doing that. Yeah. Um, maybe point one, maybe there's a reason for it. The, ginormous value of 0.1 microfarad yeah that's a pretty it's a pretty big value um but uh, you know they make these really high density small parts now you can get like a 10 microfarads in an 0603 or something like that and these really high density parts you know at, at a fairly decent voltage i think 25 volt 0603 10 microfarads i think that's a thing i don't know if you can get them anymore um, but I'm not sure how good they were. And I'm not sure that by the time you'd put in all these aging factors and all that stuff, you might have been better off with a one microfarad um, and knowing actually having a slightly better idea or 0.1 microfarad even better, knowing what its value would be in the future. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, use use a more conservative value. Might be okay. Or a smaller value. In general, when you push the when you push the capacitors to say, I want the most capacitance I can get in this package uh, at some voltage, and you pick that one, that break point in the data sheet, the that's usually case. a mistake. Yeah, don't do that. You've <laughs> got to go down a couple of values at least. Um, and in the case so, of these high-density ceramics, you may need to go down way down the page. Um. Speaking of like this aging stuff, so there's a group of people who this is this is getting audio stuff like stomp boxes and effects pedals mm -hmm. where people care about the how old the batteries are that drive these circuits because apparently that changes what how they sound. Mm. I can totally see in the future marketing that this stomp pedal is like nine years old and its ceramic capacitors are like aged in just the right way now. Oh, Seasoned. yeah, <laughs> yeah, you might be able to hear that. Yeah, it's amazing what you can hear. Um, I've been, um, yeah, working with Alembic on on um, bass guitar circuits and it is amazing what people can hear. Um, you know, you hear about all kinds of golden ear stuff and all kinds of things, but if you know what to listen for, there's a lot of the problems are really just bad. I mean, there you can you can really hear it. Even if you can't hear it, if something changes it, you can tell that something has changed or is changing. An example would be if you play through a compressor. You play a a guitar through a compressor. What it's doing is it's changing the gain while you're playing and adapting the gain to be a more optimum level based on the way you set the knobs. And so you say, well, that's fine. That, that should work great. But at the same time that it's addressing, adjusting the gain for your signal, it's also adjusting the gain for the noise in the channel. And you may not have noticed the noise before, but when the noise starts going up and down, you can hear it. And so it wasn't something you could normally hear, but the change in it is something you, you can hear. And so that's, that's where I think a lot of the sort of weird effects of weird things that people can hear come from. 
this sort of, well, it changes in a different way. Uh, and maybe they think they tracked it down to the battery or something. You know, maybe they're wrong and it wasn't the battery. Maybe it was something else that they changed at the same time. It's very difficult to do these experiments because your ears get tired. It's hard to, um, you know, if, if your test equipment is your ears, they're not particular, they're kind of suggestible. If people tell you things, you can kind of hear it. And they're also, you know, they're not real accurate. Um, over time. It's like listening to static and thinking you hear ghosts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, hearing hearing signals out of the noise. Yeah, yeah. And even like what is static, right? Like there's thermal noise that we kind of agree, yeah, that we all agree that's static. But then there's kind of the sound of machines that you hear from like a radio too close to a computer. You know, that sort of buzz and whine that you hear. Well, you, if you know what to listen for, you can hear different things. You, like I know a data bus from an address bus. I can listen to it and I can tell you which one it is. Um, and if there's, if sometimes clocks, you know, if there's more, like if there's more than one clock and their frequencies are shifting a little bit, that will cause some mixing product that you can hear. Uh, there's all kinds of things that you can hear that, you know, are kind of in that category of noise-like, and they're not particularly musical, but you can learn to hear them. Um, clicks and pops are the worst. Like most, you know, when, as a hobbyist sort of making a stomp pedal or something like that, the worst thing when you first get started is, well, yeah, it's a great effect, but when I turn it on, it makes this big popping sound, right? So how do I deal with that? Right. Well, it's not. It's not really a steady state problem. You know how to. It, it's it's a it's a hard one to do. Uh, so yeah, sort of hiding hiding these things from the human ear is difficult because it's there's it's actually pretty good at a lot of things. It's hard to explain. So I'm. I guess I'm symp golden ear sympathetic, but not, but not so much that I would pay a lot of money for it uh, unless I knew what I was buying and I believed it. I, I really like that. I, I might have to steal that golden ear sympathetic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can really do A-B testing. You know, I think you, you did that on a project before with capacitors, right? Could you hear these oh, capacitors yeah. and which yeah, one sounds better? Hear the yeah, and you can. And yeah. it was a terrible circuit design. It wasn't that bad of a circuit design, but it wasn't optimal for sure. But yeah, uh -huh. you could definitely hear a difference. And people pick the cheaper capacitors. Uh -huh. it, it, yeah. if, it comes, if it comes to audio making changes um, that are designed for taste, not for functionality, I always do it with substitution boxes because I, I have to hear uh, the, the, the switch or the change. It has to be almost instantaneous. Because um, if you don't, you will just load your mind up with bias, and you'll pick one based off of no real anything. Mm. And and ninety nine percent of the time, you know, switching between two adjacent values on a on a box, I mean, you're never gonna know that you you won't notice the difference between that. Even if you go up, uh, you know, an order of magnitude, a lot of times you don't even hear a difference between that. Hmm. Yeah, it kind of depends on what you're playing. So, do you play through the the circuit while you're while you're adjusting it in order to sort of see what it does, or do you have a signal 
that you run through? How do you just what do you use for the programming when you're do, doing that? Yeah, it it depends on the um depends on what situation I'm I'm going with. Most of the time it is playing through uh and and hearing and feeling the difference between it because a lot of times you'll make a change and it doesn't sound any different, but I approach things different uh with with the instrument because it can change the feel and not the tone but may, maybe i'm getting a little bit into the weeds on that <laughs> no i i it's really interesting to me because i'm uh i well i i got into electronics in the first place to work on my bass guitar um mm -hmm. and now i'm at the closer to the end of my career and i'm getting back into electronics to mess with my bass guitar so um, in second childhood, as it were, um, I got a chance to try it again, but this time I know more. But I'm, what I'm finding out is there's a lot more to learn, and it's a big, complicated topic. It's very interesting. And um, it, yeah, it I had really a lot of fun at Alembic uh, working on the basses. It's great. I wonder if this rolls down to, I'm, we're going to win more off topic, but it rolls down to, your senses are based off change and not absolute stuff. Um, like it's easier to see movements with your eyes than static things. Yeah. Like what Stephen mm. was just saying is he's basically made a differentiator, right? He's, he's mm -hmm. putting in two settings and switching back and forth between them. It's kind of like a chopper op amp, right? Where, where you, you have a reference and then you have your signal and you chop back and forth between them and it's that delta that you see is much more sensitive than um, you know than it otherwise would be. You have to be able to detect, identify, and even better yet, be able to verbalize what changed to be able for it to actually uh, manifest as a change itself. Uh, anything else ends up being kind of voodoo in a way. Subjective. I'm saying that when it comes to audio. Yeah, I need to get better at that. Uh, so <laughs> what kind of speaker do you listen to when you're just at your bench? And it, so how do you have your amplifier or whatever it is arranged? Because I know with my workbench, I well, I have an amp next to it um, that I can hook up uh, and and hear things. But how do, how do you do it? Well, okay, so or... there's there's a, a huge number of ways that I approach that um, just because if I'm developing a product uh, for a specific situation, I try to play it in that situation. Mm. Um, not, man, well, now we're really getting into weeds on things. Well, but no, I guess, no, I guess this not... is measurement in a way. No, this is measurement, except yeah. it's not with high-accuracy test equipment. It is, it's the same thing, though. Yeah. It's... Your how you are testing it and how you approach it depends on the product and what you're trying to measure. Right. Well, okay. So, so let's let's take a great great example. Speakers um, here. You know, speakers can be highly directional, very beamy, um, uh, straightforward. So, if I'm trying a change, I'll have the speaker on the floor pointing at my ankles, and then I'll put it up on a desk pointing straight at my head. Then I'll tip it at an angle, then I'll flip it backwards and hear it from behind while I'm making the same change uh, in all of those situations. And I'm making sure that I'm not just preferring how something is in one of those configurations. I'm, I'm making sure that I can hear that same change no matter what the orientation is. And things like with a speaker being so beamy, if it's pointing at my ankles, I have a, I have a tendency to just 
crank treble uh, just so I can hear it five and a half feet higher or six feet higher off the ground uh, than if it's on the bench pointing straight at my face. I, I have a huge tendency to, to reduce treble. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm adjusting uh, gain on a particular stage in, in an amplifier and I'm doing a, a frequency-dependent gain, that's where it really starts to matter because, you know, am I adding a ton of, of, uh, of treble and distorting something in a, in a unique way that sounds great at my ankles, but we'll just, you know, saw your head off if it's pointing at your face, you know? So, uh, it's a, that, that sort of goes back to what I was saying, like, uh, earlier about, you know, when you're making a measurement, you got to know what you're shooting for. Uh, I've certainly made tons of mistakes by just putting something in the wrong situation and, uh, and going down a, you know, a five hour path of adjusting my circuitry, uh, and it's, man, this is really fantastic. I love the sound when it's pointing at my ankles. And then I put in a, just a slightly different configuration and it's the worst thing I've ever heard. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, it, it's, um, so to answer that it's, it's super dependent on what I'm going for. Well, it sounds like you get a lot of experience that is, is what you really need to do that. And, um, uh, so do you have that do you know of any good references for that or is it is what you said written down anywhere or is that just <laughs> Maybe your, I should write it down somewhere. your personal take on no, it yeah that's... it's actually quite interesting I haven't heard it said quite like that before what, who do you look for for audio um, reference materials like I have books by uh, on amplifier design uh, and some old books by Olson on audio. Uh, do you have any favorites or any anything you like? I have one one favorite, uh, and it's it's well, he has multiple books. Uh, I think four different books on on tube amplifier design, ranging from guitar amplifiers to hi-fi, and and one of the reasons why I really like this gentleman's books is because they're they're very um, they're they're technical. They avoid. Uh, descriptors as much as possible and try to give specific reasoning as to why everything is happening so uh, it's it's filled with equations but you can ignore those if necessary and um, and um, the 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 underlying the underlying idea around the book is being able to wrangle the electronics to do what you want so it's gu guiding towards a goal as opposed to saying like if you like this sound do this uh, there's plenty of resource material out there uh, that has that kind of feel to it, and I, I steer away from those because they're just they're they're unbelievably subjective. So give me the equations, show me what's happening in my transfer curves or or in the tube curves or or solid state curves. Show me what's actually happening there, and then I can be the one who experiments on those edge cases. Uh, to find whatever characteristic I'm looking for. So th that gentleman is uh, Merlin Blenkow, um, mm. and they, he has just a handful of resource books um, about um, power supply design, hi-fi, and uh, guitar amp stuff. Well, I'll check it out. The one I like, um, just kind of an introduction to design, is the Marshall Leach. Um, mm -hmm. He was a professor at... Um, Georgia Tech, I think. Uh, Introduction to Electroacoustics and Audio Amplifier Design. And I mm. think he, he used it as a textbook, I think. And it's got like full schematics in it with all the values and everything. <laughs> uh, and so you can actually build 
what's in there and um, I've heard they work. Um, I haven't built any myself, but it's got, like you said, it's got a lot of equations in there. And uh, one thing I like about it a lot is that the circuits are also relatively easy to simulate. If you put them into a simulator, they work. Uh, unlike a lot of circuits that have some sort of unknown parameters that are you're counting on such that if you put it in a simulator, if you didn't know to adjust this one little thing in this transistor or whatever, that it wouldn't actually do the right thing. Um, these, these I have actually simulated the circuits and they, they work. In fact, you can use the power amp as an op amp. Um, if you need to design your own op amp sometime and oh, you just really want cool. a simulation model. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever want a transistor based, uh, op amp, So what? A, I so does that. What about tubes? Does this um, Merlin Blenko have tubes? Does he cover tubes, or just transistors? Uh, he predominantly covers tubes. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, my my classic for tube is yep. is the uh, Radiotron Designer's Handbook. Do you ever you ever see this thing? Uh, I have two different ver uh, versions of it. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, there's a PDF of it that's online. I, 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 there's a uh, there's an old textbook that I have. I've, I've probably told this story before, but there, there's an old textbook I have. I love it. Um, it was written in 49, 50. I can't remember what year. But uh, at the very beginning, in the preface of the of the book, they're they're talking about basically what to expect, and and you know this is the pinnacle of technology. Oh sweet! Uh, these these newfangled <laughs> vacuum tubes, and and they they start by discussing um, how accurate they have read the speed of light and it's like to four or five digits something like that and it's and it's like this hoorah moment in the book where it's like <laughs> we know this very accurately <laughs> nice so what's the, the name of that book do you remember uh th that one it's just an old textbook uh so i'd have to i'd have to grab it um it's there's, got a very academic name there's a very cool website i think it's called tubebooks.org uh is that right okay. no that's not right i have to find it um but anyway there's a a great uh website that has a whole bunch of pdfs of old electronics books uh i'll have to see if i can find uh if I can find the, um, yeah, tube yeah, there it is. Tubebooks.org. Like tube yeah. And so it has data sheets and lots of textbooks and other books, uh, reference materials. Uh, amazing, amazing research. You know, you know, it's an old website, not by just how it looks though, but it's, they're recommending me download Adobe Accurate PDF reader. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the because nice. like you can almost smell this website. You know, it's got that musty book odor. <laughs> musty website. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was a good it was kind updated of musty. Recently. You know, it's that book smell, oh, that yeah. old book inviting. Smell. Yeah, it's like a used bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> it was last updated August twenty fourth, twenty twenty one. Yeah, it's wow. very active. Uh, the guy is incredibly productive and makes the most beautiful scans of things that people send to him. It just does a fantastic so job. Cool. Yeah, he definitely focuses on the content and not the 
presentation. You know, it's all it's all what's inside the PDF is um, is what oh, you want. I, I, I prefer my websites to be like this because you can easily find the info. It's just the whole like get Adobe Reader. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, like yeah. Well, all yeah. browsers nowadays have that built in. <laughs> Under construction sign, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely, uh, early days of the web, I was definitely one of the, I was definitely an early adopter and saw all that go by. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> well, I guess uh, we have anything else we want to kind of touch on or... I think we covered everything that that uh, Tom has written down here. Yeah, I think we've kind of gone mostly over it. I'm sure we could go a lot more. <laughs> well, um, if you want to, um, so I don't share this with too many people, but um, but I'll share it today here. Uh, so there's a site called k2rnf.com. That's kilowatt two radio Norway France dot com. Uh, and that is a site that I built for my dad mostly. Um, uh, it's about his stuff. Uh, he was a radio amateur, oh, cool. and so um, you can you can check that out or put up a link to it. It has an old article that he wrote for QST uh, in 1965, and about his 15 minutes of fame as the uh, first amateur to receive weather satellite photos. Oh, I see. Um, I see the PDF here. This is really cool. Wow, this is. Yeah, I even I got permission to uh, to to put them up from uh, QST. They were very nice to me. Very cool. So, Tom, where can people ask you questions if you want to be asked questions? Uh, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Well, the Macrofab Slack is actually a very reliable way to get a hold of me um uh and a really great community um it's totally pristine and non-polluted it's uh one of the joys of the internet uh and so thanks for hosting that and and keeping that good um thank you tom so yeah, i'm i'm totally uh on there and uh you can ask ask me anything as many people do. And maybe I'll answer. <laughs> okay, well, well I, would you like to uh, sign us out then? That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, and I was your guest, Tom Anderson. And we were your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. <laughs>